Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and happy 2023. I hope the holidays were good to you and that your new year is off to a killer start. To kick off the new year, we're going to be taking the next few episodes to highlight some of the people behind the podcast. You've heard their names and many of their voices on the show, but I think it's well past time we got to know them maybe a little better and to give them the proper thanks they're due. To get us started is none other than our resident maven of the macabre, Meredith Morgenstern. Meredith started out with Tales to Terrify as an author, with her story Confetti published on episode 383 back in May of 2019. She joined our crew of slush readers not long after that. Thanks to her passion for the show and twisted love of all things horror, she wormed her way even deeper into our hearts. And before we knew it, she'd become our resident master of fiction. Together with Seth, she's responsible for selecting those final devilish tales of terror that burrow deep into your ears each week. And let me tell you, managing our submissions leading a ravenous pack of flesh-eating slush readers, and keeping all of our author correspondence in line is no small task. Meredith's also been the driving force behind our flash fiction contests, as well as wrangling the Bram Stoker-nominated stories that we air on the show. She, with a little technical and moral support from her son, is also the reason we've got ourselves a Discord server for our contributors and supporters. She even stepped up to the plate and into the host seat last February to help us promote the incredible impact that women have had on the horror genre. Meredith, your passion and perspective have become such a crucial part of Tales to Terrify. We're so fortunate to have you and thankful for everything you've done to keep our show fresh and frightening. 
I can't wait to see what nightmares he'll subject us to this year. Speaking of nightmares, let's see what sort of terrors we've got in store for you this week. We have one tale for you this evening, which comes to us from J.M.J. Brewer. J.M.J. Brewer hails from Wisconsin, but writes from Texas. He attended the University of Louisiana and Lafayette for his Ph.D. in English and is an assistant professor at Tarleton State University. Children of the Night, join me for J.M.J. Brewer's Keeper, a Tales to Terrify original. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. James lived his life by the cycles of the sun and the moon. He awoke when the sun strode through his blinds. When the sun leaked back into its hole like so much shining pitch, James caught his rest. He eschewed the manse's overhead lights, not because he was frugal, but because he could not think of anything worth keeping them on for. A man can only read so much. He couldn't remember any more the subject of the books, but he did remember that those not delivered as parcels were loans from the library. He did not care if any were overdue. His sedentary lifestyle was the result of an unexpected family death and the subsequent suit. He slipped through his days without a sense of time or place or self, really, if he was being honest. He'd lain in the waves so long he'd become nothing more than the scum that hangs atop the swell. Today, however, he was antsy. He awoke earlier than usual, and by the brightness in the room, he judged it morning. He didn't know the last time he bathed. When he was scarcely rinsed, the doorbell peeled apart the silent manse. Was there a package he'd forgotten he'd ordered? He no longer bothered leaving his manse for such mundanities as shopping. As a result, his only interaction with the world at large was through delivery people. 
James only dried his body's junctures and the bottoms of his feet. He robed, he flew through the manse, up one corridor, through a tea room, down the stairs, across the foyer, and flung open the front door. A delivery guy stood on his doorstep. The guy handed him a clipboard. Hey, chief, sign here. James did not sign. He would have remembered ordering this package. A truck idled in his cul-de-sac, well, more like a van, one of those with the open beds. He and his brother had driven a nearly identical vehicle during summer's landscaping in college. A massive crate guarded the van. The crate flung a long shadow like a tombstone at the golden hour, except wooden, and it was not yet mid-morning. Wrong address, croaked James. His voice was out of practice. He tried again. Wrong place, man, sorry. The delivery guy pointed at his clipboard upon which James's address was boldly proclaimed. Maybe it's a gift, huh? The delivery guy looked sheepish. He was maybe a few years out of high school. The veins on his forearms drove straight lines across his biceps. I really don't want to load it back into the truck, he said. James eyed the package. Mind helping me get it inside the mats? They commenced. James tilted the package backward while the delivery guy shoved the lip of a dolly beneath. Together they reoriented the package until it lay casket flat, spun it 180 degrees on the dolly, and hauled the thing up the three steps to his front door. Once inside, they tipped the package so it stood upright on its own volition. It seemed even larger in the foyer. Big joint you got here, said the delivery guy. He wore a wide smile. Clergy house. Huh? asked James. Mats, you said, said the delivery guy. He fingered paint streaks on the package's edges. Parallel scars scoured the doorframe. I thought we were going to have to take off the door. It's another word for mansion. I read it in a book, said James. He was embarrassed, as he'd vaguely feared. Solitude had turned him into an eccentric. The delivery guy was craning his head around to look through the foyer door into the house proper. He whistled. Yeah, I hear you. His head ticked from one hallway to the next. James had always imagined the foyer as the head of an octopus and the inexplicably ribbonous hallways that octopus's tentacles. I'm not trying to pry or anything, but what's the square footage on her? Asked the delivery guy. I got a buddy on the market and we're trying to gather intel, so to speak. No idea, said James. It was true. Well, said the delivery guy. Together they regarded the package. Want me to bust her open for you? He waved a pry bar. James hadn't seen it on him before. His eyes shone, thought James, with a not professional curiosity. No, thanks. And anyway, James wanted to open this mysterious package without an audience. Something about the proceedings felt intimate. He'd signed for it, after all. This crate and whatever inside belonged to him. Meanwhile, the delivery guy was twirling his pry bar and pacing down the corridor. He could have been a drum major. James ushered him toward the door. Do I need to tip you? James asked. The delivery guy shrugged. Wouldn't hurt. James didn't find any cash in his bathrobe pockets. Wait here, he told the guy. He jogged upstairs and, after some scrounging, discovered a sheaf of bills acting as bookmarks for a stack of tomes in his half-bath. He slipped the guy two bills. That work? Sure, man. The delivery guy shoved the money in his pocket. He hardly seemed to look at it. Have a nice day, said James. Might want to water your houseplants said the delivery guy. Huh? Your houseplants, said the delivery guy. He pointed with his pry bar. Whatever, man. The delivery guy shook his head and closed the door behind him. But James kept the door open with his foot. He watched the delivery guy walk to the van, drive off. Only then did he look where the delivery guy had pointed. In the center of his house, around which the hallways slithered, nestled a cylindrical atrium. Inside were ten square yards of decrepit forest. 
The realtor had told him the way inside, but he'd long since forgotten. James gathered a pry bar, a broom, and a vacuum. Thus prepared, he knocked the pry bar into the gap between the crate's panels. He worked it clockwise until the front panel popped off. Packing peanuts spilled onto the hardwood. He got a hand on either side of the panel and struggled it to the ground, squeaking on the peanuts. What he saw inside startled him. He grabbed his headlamp from where it hung near the door. Couldn't be what he thought. The depth of the crate and the resulting shadows, along with his physical fatigue, had surely combined into a minor hallucination. He flipped on the headlamp. Slumped inside the crate was what appeared to be a human-sized doll. It was all dressed in leather. The doll was further encased inside an inflated plastic bag. A tube sprouted from the doll's gaping mouth, ran up through the plastic bag, and shot into the open air. The doll looked heavy. It was as tall as he was. He poked the plastic bag, and the plastic held as firmly as the inflatable furniture he and his brother had coveted in their preteens. Who had sent this? He hunted around the inside edges for a letter, or even an adhesive tag. The outside of the crate was similarly unmarked. There wasn't even a plastic envelope with documents inside, like he'd seen on large crates in the movies. Worst case scenario, he could call the delivery company and inquire the sender's identity and address. He fixated on the delivery guy's uniform, specifically his chest, where a logo might reside. Nothing specific, only the delivery guy's pectoral muscle bunching beneath the tight teal shirt as sinuously as snakeskin. Maybe the delivery instructions were on the doll's person. A hidden gift tag with a QR code and a personalized message. He tugged on the doll, but it didn't budge. Only then did he notice the bindings that kept it standing. Thick and translucent plastic. The same that attached new socks to cardboard. He went to the garage and found his pruners. These only scoured the plastic. He exchanged his pruners for his loppers. The lopper's metal beak gnawed into the bindings. James kept his hands low on the handles and squeezed. That did it. Five sharp squeezes, and the doll tipped into the hallway. It lay on the tile. Hissing air escaped from its plastic bubble. He flipped the doll so it lay face up. Its mouth tube had cracked in the fall. And to his considerable surprise... The inside of the plastic bag began to collect condensation. The bag constricted and inflated. Constricted, inflated, constricted, inflated. Finally, he understood. James stabbed the lopper's bottom jaw into the bag. The dull beak glanced off. The doll began to writhe. James rushed to the kitchen, leg trailing for a knife. When he returned, the doll had drug itself a yard from the box. It had flipped back onto its belly. James knelt over the doll and pulled its head back and sliced the knife across the ballooning plastic. He flipped the doll over. Its eyes were rolling. It was bucking for its life, and it was strong. James pinned its shoulders with his knees and braced his forearm against the doll's neck. He cut around the breathing tube, and he wrenched the tube out. The tube kept coming, the last foot of it slimy with mucus and blood. The doll retched. James pushed it onto its side and scooped his fingers into its mouth to clear the vomit. It heaved again. The vomit ran slick down the leather and the plastic, slid beneath the cuff of his sleeve. His own gorge rose. He dug in the doll's mouth until there was no more vomit, and then he slapped the doll on the back. The doll took in huge gulps of breath. Too fast. James gathered the doll close, spread his hands on the leather chest, and breathed big and slow and steady. The doll mimicked him. Soon enough, they were both breathing big and slow and steady. The doll fell asleep in his lap. Now that he knew it was alive, he could hardly call it a doll. 
After some time, he'd scooted from beneath it. Daylight had fossilized the foyer in amber. The doll, the figure, was resolutely out. It was breathing steadily. James dragged it out of its mess and laid it against the wall so it wouldn't fall. Its eyelids were pale, and its mouth hung half open. Its teeth were too white and straight, veneers maybe, or dentures. James filled a bucket with nearly boiling water and hunted a mop. He squirted dish soap into the bucket. Three buckets of water until there was no more vomit, an additional bucket for the figure. He was gentle with the mop, and anyway, the figure was still out cold. He scooted the crate to the nook where Foyer met Central Hallway. The crate fitted there as surely as a rustic wardrobe. Its yawning mouth grated on his nerves, so he propped the lid against it. Now, what to do with you, he said. The figure did not stir. The house felt awfully quiet now that he'd spoken. He dialed the radio to a classic rock station and listened to songs he knew back to front. The broken air tube lay next to the figure like a spent prophylactic. James drew one more bucket of water and let the tube soak. Forcing down an apprehension bordering on dread, James toweled the figure dry. The figure's flesh was warm even through the towel and the plastic and the leather. The towels went directly into the washing machine. He carefully sliced the figure from its plastic cocoon. He felt very conscious of his hands, braced on the figure's body. It was bony but muscular, especially along hamstrings and calves. Its collarbone jutted through the leather like the crest of a colt's thigh. Bolts ran through the leather at the figure's elbow and knee joints. He couldn't find a zipper. He checked the plastic for tags or barcodes. He couldn't find anything, but then again he was not in a relaxed state of mind, so he folded the plastic into the crate. Roxy music overhung the scene. Except for his own bedroom, the only furnished bedroom in the mats was up the stairs and down the hallway to the left, about as far away as you could get. The mirror of his own, except in the opposite wing, if you were being technical. But he couldn't very well have the figure sleep on hardwood, he also couldn't carry the figure, considering it was as large as he was. He solved the problem by building a travoy from the broom handle, the mop handle, a yardstick, and the shower curtain. He rolled the figure onto the taut curtain. Every so often, the figure's eyelids would flutter. It had blue eyes, same as him. Once he'd read that 10% of people in the world had blue eyes. His knee hitched and he knew that tomorrow it would scream fire at him. The stairs were the worst, and the travoy left a black water scum trail. He made up his mind to get a water filter, or a water softener, or whatever. The figure's room had been shut a while, James couldn't remember exactly how long. Leather chair and fur ottoman and a bed with an elk antler headboard. Shag carpet, a muscalunge arching over an electric fireplace. A white-tailed buck guarding the closet. He always thought this bedroom should have been his brother's room, which didn't make sense because he wouldn't have been able to afford this house but for his brother never needing sleep again. Since the travoy wouldn't fit through the door, he had to drag the figure the final stretch. The bed seemed high as a mesa step. He left the figure to lie on a sheepskin rug next to the bed. In the middle of the night, across the manse, a light turned on. James could see the glow just barely beneath his door. The bedroom light? The bathroom? After a few minutes, the light turned off. James was shaking likely stale coffee grounds into a dusty French press when he turned and the figure was squatting on the edge of the kitchen table. It looked huge. Good morning, he said. He tried his best not to appear frightened. The figure did not respond. I hope you slept well. Sorry I couldn't get you into bed. My knee, you know. Talking seemed safest. He certainly couldn't match the figure's silent intensity. <laughs> so, <laughs> James laughed. It was probably the least honest sound he'd ever uttered. Who sent you, right? 
The figure placed its palms on the table between its thighs and lifted itself. It spun its body over and stuck its legs out until it became a great black T. Jesus Christ, said James. Slowly, deliberately, the figure curled back into its original position. It was like watching the finale of an eclipse. James took a mug from the cupboard. He dropped it. It shattered. He succeeded with a second mug, and he filled both his mug and this other with coffee. He held the mug out to the figure, and coffee sloshed onto the broken porcelain. The figure slouched on the table's edge, legs swinging. Its posture still felt very performative. Its lips were full and flush. It did not take the coffee. I wish you would have told me before I poured it, James tried to joke. Coffee stays warmer in the press. The figure kept swinging its legs. For a second, James's irritation surmounted his fear. Well, find me if you want to talk. He spun on his heel and heard a subtle shift behind him, a rush of leather over tile, a squeak of slick movement. James tensed for a blow or for a strange and awful embrace. When neither happened, he turned. The figure was performing a strange dance, alternately lurching and smooth, rapid and viscous, virginal and lascivious. The leather clung to its frame tighter than the delivery guy's uniform. James could make inventory of its straining musculature. Only the young and strong could perform such a dance so fervently. It reminded him of how strong he'd been before, and his brother, too. Suddenly, he couldn't handle the dance any longer. His face was all wet, and he thought he must be crying. His breath was coming in quick sobs. He felt his hips surging, wanting to buck and move. James escaped as fast as his smarting leg would allow. On the way, he gathered the plastic from the crate, back up the stairs to his bedroom into the master bath. James locked the door and turned on both lights. The fan whined. His knee throbbed. He switched on his headlamp and draped the plastic suit over the shower rod. It stunk of mildew as would the hide of an angel or a spent chrysalis of humanity. He peered over every inch of the plastic. When that yielded nothing, he switched off the overheads and switched to the headlamp's blacklight. There was nary a mark, a logo, a ridged serial number. His foot slipped and he slammed down onto his bum knee and fell face first into the plastic. It constricted him, shrouded him as tightly as vacuum-sealed lunch meat. He danced with jagged steps until his vision purpled, until he punctured the plastic with his fingernails and sucked a thin stream of air. He tore the hole wider, stuck his tongue through. The black light cast royal shadows on the walls. They were echoes of his heart, a fractured, broken palimpsest of lines and folds and purple gashes. James lay on the bottom of the tub with the plastic stuck around his neck. He wondered if this was how it had felt inside the crate. And right there, not inches from his face, James spied a string of thirteen digits. A shipping number? A product code? He launched to his feet and wrote the digits on a sticky note and stuck the note to the mirror. Finally, he wanted to cheer. When he was sure the figure was asleep, he could search the internet for the numbers. But with this thought, his sense of accomplishment curdled into unease. Was the figure still dancing? Or was it waiting for him, still as death, ready to commence the dance once it had audience again? James did not want to know. He curled up on the shower mat. Eventually, he crawled into his bedroom. What time was it? Past dinner time, at least, judging by the tenor of his stomach's growls. The figure was nowhere to be seen. James checked the closet and beneath the bed to make sure. He resolved to brave the kitchen once again, acrobatics be damned. Was he going to be afraid in his own home? 
but he couldn't quite bring himself to turn the door handle. Might he read? But no, he couldn't bear to disturb the pile of books. Still, he glanced at the edge of the topmost cover, glimpsed the spines of those turned out from the wall. Odd symbols, weird glyphs. Fear sweat sprung on his brow. He tossed a bath towel over the pile. With this accrued courage, James swung open the door. He stopped midway, because the shattered coffee mug had been placed before the door. It had been reassembled. There were still some chips, but he reckoned it would hold liquid. James relaxed. The assembly of the mug was as sure a sign of good faith as any. If the figure couldn't speak, then this gesture was as loud as words. He announced himself to the hall. Hey, thanks. Kind of you. His voice's echo revealed the true size of the manse. After he ate, James did the dishes. It was a change of pace. High on the feeling of order, James began to tidy up. He dialed to the classic rock station. The nightly DJ was syndicated, which was a less personal but a far better production than the local yokels in the AM. He'd listened to half a rock block when he spied the figure stage creeping across the tile. It hid behind the grandfather clock, marking time in one of the hallways curling off the foyer. As children, he and his brother had played make-believe games with the clock, its face disgorged clockwork versions of people they knew. He didn't know the last time he'd wound it. He couldn't remember if it had been running before. In any case, it ran now, and from behind it, stuck the figure's leatherhead. The figure kept pace with him from hallway to hallway, always at a safe distance. Often, he could only spy its crown peeking out from around the corner. It didn't take long to realize the figure wasn't really hiding. They were playing a game together. The point of the game seemed to be pretending you weren't found. That night, the figure came into his bedroom. It crawled toward the bed. Sure, said James. It jumped onto the bed, curled up at the foot. Its black bulk seethed with sleep breath. James extended his foot to press the figure's muscular flank. James awoke, and he could not tell why. The night was dark. The bed was empty. He heard a creaking sound that could only be footsteps. Was the figure investigating the house? He wanted to watch its discoveries in secret, witness its graces when it was alone. With all the stealth he could muster, he swung his feet into his slippers. He eschewed the robe even though it was freezing, figuring he'd forgotten to activate the heat just as the heater rumbled to life. Warm air whisked out the open door. James did not think. He plucked the towel off the books like a table trick. The symbols on the books were loud, almost, like he was hearing the echo of his own actions from days past. He averted his eyes and kicked backwards into the mound to expose a square of carpet. He pried upwards. Inside this compartment was a bubble-wrap-lined shipping box, and inside that was a leather-sheathed dagger. He pocketed the sheath. The dagger was not clean. James crept toward the cold. The figure was nowhere in attendance. In the dark came voices too far for words. He followed the pale jet stream down one corridor through the tea room to the stairwell's balcony over which he saw them. One was rooting in the closet nearest the living room. The other was miming how to put his arms around the TV to best carry it. Shit, man, there's only empty hangers. It's like a hotel. What does this guy do all day anyway? The other guy opened and closed the TV hutch like he was testing the mechanism. He reached behind the TV and held up the cord. <laughs> it's not even plugged in. He lifted the TV and brought it to the middle of the room. James recognized him as the delivery guy. The muscles of his forearm 
his strut. Both men were balaclavas. The delivery guy squatted next to a pile of books. He leafed through the topmost, smelled its pages. He reads, I guess. These look old. I bet they're worth something. I thought you said you knew him. I said I delivered here all the time, said the delivery guy. Brother, you can buy a TV nicer than that for like 300 bucks. Shut up, said the delivery guy. He kicked the TV screen. Let's go upstairs, look for a big statue or antique javelins or something. Maybe it was a new refrigerator, the other guy grumbled. They started coming up the stairs, and James receded into the shadows. Twin flashlight beams crisscrossed the inky black. Only then did James notice the figure standing atop the stairs. It had been only four or five feet away from him the entire time. The figure balanced on one leg. It was as still as Ozymandias. He wondered if it was holding its breath. Its arms were woven above its head. A few moments passed before a flashlight beam found it. Both flashlight beams halted, pinned the figure. Jesus, said the other guy. One of the lights began moving again. The delivery guy confronted the figure at the stair top. He bit the haft of his flashlight so the light shined directly into the figure's face inches away. The figure did not blink. The delivery guy poked the figure's chest. His hands roamed. James wished for binoculars. He could just imagine those straining fingers pressing the taut leather flesh of the figure. Calloused hands squeezing the figure's arms, shoulders, thighs. Would the figure react or would it stay frozen? Would it let happen what it wanted to happen? It's some kind of statue, said the delivery guy. The other guy blew out a horse's breath. He shook his head. That is the creepiest damn statue I've... The figure dropped its foot and crossed its arms. It moved with the herky jerk of a wind-up automaton. Jesus Christ, yelped the other guy. The delivery guy jumped backwards, down the stairs. At the bottom, he lay still for a second. Two seconds. And finally, he groaned. Oh, sheesh, said the other guy. You okay, man? His beam spotlighted the figure, who posed on the top stair, foot frozen mid-tap, head cocked, and arms crossed and hips checked. Help me up, said the delivery guy. I think I hurt my leg. Their voices were disembodied and childlike in the darkness. What are you grabbing at, bro? The delivery guy's voice bled on the edge of panic. Like, actually turn around and help me up. Figure it out, hissed the other guy. James peered over the balcony. The delivery guy was glowing in the harsh sun of his own flashlight. A white thistle glistened where his knee should have been. A dark pool gathered on the hardwood. The other guy attempted to shuffle behind his companion. He had his free hand outstretched to ward for peace. The flashlight wavered. The figure danced down the stairs. The other guy screamed. James had never heard a more honest sound in his life. The guy backed away until he hit the wall, and then he half squatted down, dry wretched, and that seemed to help him find his grit. He employed his light. The figure stopped on the final step, caught in an exaggerated mince. The delivery guy tried to scoot back, but slipped in his own blood. Man, he said. He seemed awfully cognizant. There was a cold noise and another glint of light, and the delivery guy held a gun. He pointed it at the figure. A flashlight spun. The entire scene was projected in silhouette against the far wall, huge figures all in black, making harsh symbolism of line and curve. James braced for the shot. None came. Instead, the figure twirled gracefully on one heel, 
and went to its knees. It pressed its forehead against the hardwood with a soft, sticky sound. It arched its back. Oh no, said the delivery guy. There's a hole. The other guy bit his flashlight like a carrot, and the light canted wildly. He dragged his companion by his armpits, and the movement set the delivery guy to shrieking. A second later, the whale spiraled to extinction as the delivery guy passed out. James gave up his hiding place. He stood up. He turned on the overhead lights. The manse blazed the color of the noonday sun, and the figure scampered from the room as quadrupedally as any beast. Please, no, said the other guy. His voice was muffled around the metal tube. He spit the flashlight. When he saw James, his mouth opened into an appalled O. Oh. Please, he repeated. James refused to comfort him with utterance. In silence, he followed the thieves to the door. The other guy, dragging his companion around hidden corners and through looping corridors, never took his gaze off James, despite an evident urge to search frantically for the figure. The only sounds were breathing and dragging. The delivery guy woke up halfway. His eyes were vacant, filmy. James was already counting mop buckets for the blood trail. He did not know where the figure was. Perhaps it was watching right now. When they got to the door, the other guy couldn't quite work the handle with his elbow. James could see him calculating, see him realizing that he would have to drop his companion, would have to turn his back completely. Look, sir, I'm sorry, said the other guy. Let us go, okay? We'll never come back. We weren't even here, right, man? He poked the delivery guy. I think I hurt my leg, slurred the delivery guy. James shrugged. He'd never intended anything but to let them go. But now that other possibilities were in the air, well, he did sort of wonder what he could do to them, what they all could do together. Doubtless one of the books, but no, not that. He couldn't remember about the books. Wouldn't, he scolded himself. Leave before I call the cops, he said. Thanks, thank you, sir, said the other guy. A curl of blonde hair stuck through the eye hole of his balaclava. The delivery vehicle was parked outside. James was amazed at the stupidity until he thought about it from another angle. No better way to escape than to blend in. Plus, this solved one mystery. The delivery company logo was plastered on the van's hull. It was the same company that had delivered the dagger he was holding, actually, and many of the books, and his groceries. They had a warehouse in Plover. For several minutes, the other guy attempted to haul his companion into the passenger seat. When he finally succeeded, they drove off on smoking tires. James tipped them a wave. Back inside, he dialed to the classic rock station. He found the gun at the bottom of the stairs. It was laying there just like anything else in the world. He slid it into the roomy pocket of his bathrobe, where it clattered against the dagger. They're gone, he called out. James checked the bedroom and his brother's room. The figure did not reveal itself. As he passed the atrium, he noticed a glint of oily black among the browns and yellow greens. He wiped a porthole in the atrium's grime. Nothing. He cleaned the expanse of the atrium's curvature until he found the thin gap in the glass. He pressed, and a magnet disengaged, and the door swung open. The atrium wasn't quite as dead as it had appeared from outside. Sure, the largest tree had a pit in its trunk the size of his head, but the undergrowth was burgeoning. Moss grew in every nook. Ferns plaited between the trees. Mushrooms leapt off fallen logs. And by some trick of architecture and perspective, the atrium was rendered deceptively massive. It reminded him of the shadow-cloaked backyards he and his brother used to landscape. In the morning, they were as wild as this. By evening, they could host a lawn party. Still, 
the sleek black leather could not be missed. The figure crouched behind a ragged stump. Now how'd you get in there? James asked. He helped it stand, and together they limped out of the atrium. Though it mimicked his pained leg, it did not mock. The figure's limp felt like a gesture of respect, a display of shared empathy. Still, he was not the one in need of support. Together they walked to his brother's room. James tucked the figure between the sheets. It pretended to fall asleep the moment its head hit the pillow. Only its leather head and the muscular curve of one leather shoulder were exposed. A screw pierced its shoulder. Carefully, James probed the space with his finger. A hex hole. The screw ran the whole way through. James spent the next morning tracking down the number revealed on the plastic packaging. At first, he thought it was a foreign phone number. He tried several country codes to no avail. Maybe it was some sort of cipher. He considered consulting at one of the book piles. A few texts doubtlessly covered codes and other numerologies, but he was loath to. Only if I can't figure it another way, he promised. He inquired the internet for possible meanings of 13-digit numbers. He checked against barcodes, and he tried date combinations and geographic coordinates. Finally, he tested the string as a vehicle identification number. And he was on the trail. Judging by the number of digits, the vehicle was a pre-1981 model. After much trial and error, he arrived on the VIN of a 1980 American-made station wagon. All the air, it seemed, was sucked from the room. Or maybe just his lungs. He had trouble seeing through a wet veil. His knee twinged. Could it be the same car? Could it be any other? The VIN did not indicate paint color, but James knew the white flank of the beast. It was rapacious, had gobbled up his brother and part of himself. James quieted his gasps. Of course the station wagon wasn't hungry. It was a hunk of metal piloted by a very apologetic and vaguely confused elderly music teacher whose license had been subsequently revoked. Where was the figure? James wanted it, now, to witness its odd ways, its vivacity. He checked the kitchen and, finding no one, drank vodka he discovered far back in the freezer. This was a good idea. It dulled the pain in his knee and brightened his mood. He hoped the delivery guy's knee wasn't hurt too bad. When the vodka was gone, he wondered what to do. Hello, the mats, he called out. It was so quiet. He reflected that it only seemed quiet if you had somebody else around. When you were alone, it wasn't quiet. It just was. He dialed on the radio then hobbled to the basement refrigerator where he discovered more vodka. Hello, the figure, he called out. With all this revelry, he was moved to dance. He hopped all the way up the stairs while Lou Johnson crooned on Thursday Request Eves with Tomcat. He hadn't realized it was already nighttime. Where had the figure been all day? You want a drink? He made sure to be loud to account for the radio. There was no vodka left by the time he made it to his brother's room. James slid inside and there was no body to receive him. The closet light was on. He crept forward with steps as exaggerated as his knee would allow. The figure knelt at the altar of closet. James had at some point stocked it with clothes his brother might have worn. The figure was gathering hung garments and carefully folding each. It smoothed the creases on a pair of chinos. James couldn't help admiring its broad back, its coiled haunches. Hey, said James, I was looking for you. It did not stop its ritual. James's hands were shaking, but he grabbed its shoulders anyway. He massaged the figure until it leaned into his grip. All at once, he felt the vodka. He rushed with blood and courage. He knelt behind the figure and wrenched it close. 
held on for his life, for its warmth, pressed himself to the figure, pressed, pressed, and together they scattered the clothes all over the floor. James awoke with the rhythm of the sun. He lay in his brother's closet. He was alone. He crawled into the room proper while the taxidermy beasts peered down at him. He accepted their judgment. Antlers of hangover headaches splintered from his temples. On the bedside table was half a cup of coffee. The other half had leaked out the sides of the broken mug. James took care not to cut his lip. He rallied to his feet. Over the house speakers, the morning DJs jawed about the best gifts to get for your twin's birthday. James faced the mats. Each and every shade was cast open. All the fan blades had been dusted. The railings glistened with wood polish and the air smelled of old English. James's headache flared. Good morning, he rasped. The noise was so pitiful he did not try again. He avoided the kitchen because any food odor could send him cascading. The inane and rising conversation of DJs Quick and Kathy in the AM drew him to the atrium. When he broke the threshold and it felt like he'd stepped into fresh air instead of the further depths of the manse, he wondered if he was still drunk. A trail of uprooted plants took him straight to the figure. It hadn't noticed him yet. It was weeding the atrium and it had made good progress. Its leather hands were tinged green. The tableau called him back to the landscaping summers, then laborious, now halcyon. Once he and his brother had disturbed a hornet's nest with a rock bar, and the hornets had flown up his brother's shorts, they'd missed stinging his penis by a hair's breadth. Every so often the figure would pause over its work. Did it perform for him even now? Even when it was still, it was not still like a person. It stood stock as the remade beasts mounted in his brother's room. Good morning, James said. Thanks for the coffee. The figure did not startle. It held a palm to its chest and bowed its head. Want some help? The figure made no indication of answer. He wondered why it bothered. The atrium had lost all splendor. Its life was mean and scrabbling. Resuscitation to its former glory would constitute miracle. And even in resurrection, it wouldn't return the same. Not quite. James tossed the dagger into the undergrowth. He considered the gun for longer. Much easier that way. But too cold, too incidental. Too like the white station wagon. James hung his bathrobe over a desiccated branch and the heavy pocket swung pendulum. Once they finished, they sat encircled by dredged weeds. Looks a lot better. He wished he had water, but he couldn't leave now or lose his nerve. The figure opened its arms. It expected the embrace from last night. Growing up when he and his brother roughhoused, James had invariably ended on top. Older twin means more nutrients, he'd taunt, knees pinning his brother's shoulders, free to insert the first knuckles of his pinky fingers into his brother's nostrils. The figure folded into James. He smelled the leather behind the autumnal odor of the wilderness. The figure's lips brushed his ear. It turned face down and arched its hips. Gently, kindly, James flipped the figure onto its back. It cocked its head at him. Not like last time, he said. He stroked the figure's leather head. He had expected to cry, but now that the time had come, his eyes were as dry as his mouth. I loved you, he said. I love you. James caressed the hex bolts shot through its wrists, knees, its hips beneath its arms. He encircled those wrists with his fingers and settled his knees over the figure's shoulders. He let go the wrists. The figure's fingers traced shapes in the air. 
Its heels tapped the floor. It was dancing. James let his body sway with the figure's beat. For a minute, they danced together. Then James rested his hands on the figure's leather neck. He bore down with his full weight. The figure did not struggle. It lay there and looked at him with its blue eyes, blue as his own eyes, and it smiled and James did not have the strength to look away, so instead he squeezed tighter, tighter, until there was a small popping noise and his hands drove much deeper than they should have been able to. James listened to the classic rock station. He couldn't figure out what song the DJs were spinning. He pushed leaves and weeds and atrium detritus over the leather body. He lay back and nestled against it, just like before they were ever born. He closed his eyes, and the world revolved. Lyrics penetrated his brain. He recognized the song now. It was a remake but most people didn't know that. Oh, how can I forget you when there is always something there to remind me? That was J.M.J. Brewer's Keeper, as read by Andrew Gibson. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming, and he remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or, for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in The Narrator Nook and The Haven Discord servers. Links are in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Orion D. Hegre, Paul Belcher, Amanda Gottfried, and Kathy Robinson, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we threaten your fragile sanity with more Tales to Terrify.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.